Harrison, I'd like to start by giving thanks for a great gift that God has given me in my life. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for this? Is it the gift of a guest room that you're still in? Um, no, though, update on that. Uh, we've got a lot of furniture, and soon, at the latest, October 5th, I'll have, actually have my bed frame. Mm-hmm. And once I get a bed frame and a desk, then I'll be ready to move in gotcha. and start doing stuff. So <laughs> okay. that's, that's going on. So, you know, I'm thankful I have a place to stay, yep. a place to record this podcast. Mm-hmm. But that's not what I want to give thanks for today. Okay. What I want to give thanks for today is Dungeons & Dragons. Okay. It has, and I'm actually being serious... <laughs> An incredible blessing in my life. Uh, not just for an excuse to hang out, people have fun. It's just a fun way to engage the imagination and all this stuff. But because of it, it's helped me form like a really good friendship, uh, and also increase my friendship with uh, this family. Um, I don't know if I want to say their last name on the podcast, but Carl and Aaron and their kids, who I've been close to forever. But you know, beginning. Months and months and months ago, I think last year before Christmas, uh, it would mean that I would go to their house like every week. And so like the kids, who they knew me, they knew Father Anthony, but I became mm-hmm. part of their lives and a part of their family. And that has been such a blessing for me that I have that place to stay. Uh, they just had a new baby girl and just being able to go over to the house and hold the baby for a while. Delightful. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I love it so much. Um, and the, the little two-year-old, um, who was my buddy, uh, was talking with his dad, and he was just naming members of the family. And he was like, and uh, Father Ansi? And I was like, oh! <laughs> and then, of course, the, you know, the, the six-year-old was more like, well, he's not an immediate family. And then the little guy goes, no, he's family. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, my heart! <laughs> So just just having that relationship with that family has been just, I don't know how I could do it. Yeah. I don't know how I could do it. And it all happened because of D&D. Mm. I mean, a bunch of other stuff as well, because I've already been close to the family. But just, uh, I was just reflecting on that the other day because we started playing again. And it just it's just lovely. It's lovely. Do you, is it also because you're closer to the city now? Like, are you closer to them than you were before? Well, I mean, recently, yeah. So yeah. that's been easier the last few weeks. Yeah. I can just pop over. It only takes like a half hour drive. But even okay. before, like, you know, I would drive an hour to get to their place so that we could do right. D&D right. on Sunday nights or right. Saturday nights yeah. or whatever we did it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So D&D was a catalyst of, of a beautiful blessing in my priestly life. Is it akin to like the community episodes of D&D? Do you have a Pierce who's like that, the guy who's really trying to make everything horrible? Yes. Oh. Well, that that began with Carl. Uh, when we first started playing, Carl was was a problem character. Um, but we've all gotten better at it. We're better at cooperating. Uh, and so, yes, we did a fan of Pierce. It was Carl. <laughs> we've we've definitely dove headfirst into the role playing. Yeah. And making characters and playing in character something that was very awkward at first. Now is like the most exciting part about mm-hmm. it. And we just embraced our nerdiness. There is no shame. Uh, there is no embarrassment. We just go for it. And it's it's there's something very freeing about that, hmm. um, about just kind of like playing a character and even because in a certain sense, when you play a character in anything, you're kind of hiding yourself. But the fact that we our accents are all terrible, we're all coming up with crazy ideas. We feel comfortable just doing that stuff, having fun together, which is actually a very freeing experience. Mm-hmm. Nice. How many people play then? Just you and Carl? 
No, me, Carl, his wife, and uh, another friend of ours, Elizabeth. Okay. Oh, nice. Uh, and then Carl's brother is our dungeon master most of the time, uh, and he's amazing at it. Nice. Amazing. He's nice. so good. And then you know, Carl has run a campaign. <laughs> I'm going to run a campaign soon. So it's it's very fun. It's very fun. I've never played D&D. Uh, I think anyone with a Catholic imagination would actually enjoy D&D. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the idea that Ratzinger thinks it's perhaps not of God? Well, uh, you know, this was a whole big controversy, especially in like the 80s and satanic panic. And I know, I'm just, I just love just, just stoking the fire. Did he actually say that though? Because that actually sure. cause me. I actually think he might have. Let's, let me keep on talking. You keep on talking. I'm going okay. to look it up. I'm going to effort this. If Ratzinger this. came out against D&D, that would be the first time I disagree with Ratzinger. Or actually, I probably agree with what he is talking about, but that's not what we're doing. I don't know. Right. Um, but as long it's it's... As long as you're not like, I can see how if someone was not, you know, super Catholic and would allow their imaginations to get ahead of them and would start to get curious in occult type stuff, I could see how that could be dangerous. Um, it was a rumor that okay. had kind of gone <laughs> around there. I bet Ratsky doesn't even know what D&D &D is. <laughs> That's my thing. I'm like, how would this guy, this guy, like... It's funny, whenever he tries to talk about stuff in the world, you can just tell he's like a little out of touch about that stuff. Yes. You're just like, oh, God bless you. God bless you. You're just yeah. trying to you're yeah. trying to show that you, you you have your feet in reality, which is a good thing, yes. but it's all it good. So good you're good. You're good. Never mind. Yeah. But we'll be talking about Rats and Girl a whole bunch in the next two episodes here on Clerically Speaking. Father Harrison. Oh, I'm Father Anthony. And yeah, you're not you Father, Father Harrison. Harrison. You're not Father no. Harrison. I'm Father, <laughs> I'm Father Harrison. Anthony. I'm Father Harrison. Um, man, what do I talk about? So actually... Um, I've had a bunch of priests visiting me lately, actually. So uh, last week, yeah, last week I had uh, uh, Father Hansu and Father Michael Corpus visit me from Toronto. Um, uh, I know one of Father Hansu's associ uh, associates through uh, Twitter. He's like, hey, my pastor's looking to come out to the island for a couple of days for holidays. Like, do you have, can they stay at your rectory? Now, we're not a big rectory here. I was like, ah, oh, there's two guests. I need two guest rooms. I don't really have two guest rooms. So we, but we figured it out. We made it work. And they were yeah. over. And so they spent their days doing their thing. They went to, like, I think they went to a bunch of places. But then in the evenings, we hung out. And, like, <clears throat> it's been a long time since I've done this. Because, like, I wake up really early now. Did I, I don't know if I mentioned this last time. I don't know if you said it on the podcast. You I wake up at, like, wake up, 5.30. No, Tuesday to Friday, I wake up at 5 a.m. <laughs> Saturday and Sunday, I wake up at six, and sun Mondays I allow myself to sleep to seven, but I usually don't, <laughs> because this way I can get my holy hour in. I can get two hours yeah. studying in before the day starts with the parish stuff. Um, I got to do it, man. It's got to get done. Oh, actually, quickly. So I have accepted that book uh, publishing for my thesis. Yeah, I don't think you mentioned that. Did you? So did, I think apparently did, did I mentioned something on the podcast, like it was being proposed. But I've accepted this. Yeah. And so this is edited. book number what twelve number four that's ridiculous i know it's that's ridiculous. so many books i know i don't get it uh it's being edited by tracy roland and matthew levering so i have to have the thesis done in 20 months which means i have to give four hours at least a day to studying and writing i was reading aristotle all morning it was fun <laughs> Woo! talk about nerdum <laughs> It's right? it's beautiful. It's Different wonderful. kinds of nerdum. It's totally. Uh, uh, but this is this is nice because it's not a new project. It's just it's just my thesis has to be done and defended in order to get them the manuscript. Got it. That's it. I mean, I have to make some edits to make it not 
sound like a thesis in a book, but this happens often with doctoral theses. So anyway, so anyways, uh, so last week we had them visit and it was a great time. Like, so Tuesday night, I was up to like, I think we were up till 1230 chatting and just great priests. Like, so Father Hansu has been, I think he's been ordained like 15 years and Father Michael has been ordained, just ordained a year. Just talking about the experiences of priesthood, and, and they're in a, like the, Toronto's the the big diocese of Canada. It's like the New York of Canada or the LA of Canada, and um, but just it was re- like really good men, really good men in the priesthood that I was really blessed to get to know, and very generous and and very uh, and they like they insisted to make dinner on Wednesday night, oh, that's but nice. lots of meat, um, and and had some scotch, and just it was just good. It was beautiful priestly fraternity. And that was great. So they were there. And then uh, yesterday, on Monday, on my day of rest, uh, a priest I, I knew in Vancouver, I hadn't seen him for a while because he was in the States finishing studies uh, doing psychology, uh, Father Brian Duggan, who's the vo- who, who was vocation instructor, sorry, but not, you know, he's just uh, doing, he's got to get his licensing stuff, I guess, or whatever. But anyways, he, we, him and I, he came out yesterday. We had mass together at my rectory, hung out, had coffee, and then went out for lunch. It was just like awesome. Just having that priestly fraternity and and just catching up and and listening and talk to each other it was just a, it was a real treat although he did tell me this it was really weird to me still like it's always weird to me <clears throat> apparently as he was traveling around the u.s people would say listen i know this is probably cliche but because you probably get asked this a lot as a canadian like oh you're from canada you know this person from this place yeah but you know <laughs> it's a shot of the dark you're a priest do you know father harrison air <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he's like he goes. It happened a few. It happened quite often, like either through Twitter or because of the podcast or whatever. He goes, "You're, you're." He goes, "You guys are well known." The most there. famous Canadian. I'm gonna take credit for that because oh, yeah. you don't bring up your Canadianness as much as I do. No, it's become a shtick because of me. Yes. So yes. Uh, your fame and glory is there's all no fame and glory. So you're there's welcome. No, <laughs> I, I've, I've demoted myself to class F Catholic celebrity. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, um, yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, but no, it was just, you know, having just that good priestly friendship, because it's, it's a little harder in our diocese, we're just so spread out and stuff. Uh, and I do have priests I do hang out with and talk to, but just, I don't know, having priests ha- hanging out with you at your rectory like that is just always a nice thing. It is. And that's, you know, one of the nice things about, I've mentioned here at this house, just the way even the structure of the house is built, it makes for a priestly fraternity just to be much easier. Yeah. And also my pastor makes just the best pesto. Mm. I've been just crushing it. It's so good. Holy moly. I don't have to come up there and one he's time. making, um, he's making some sort of basil infused, infused digestivo. He's so I'm very excited for that as well. So it's you know it's good to have priest friends. It's good to have priest friends with with talents like yeah. that as well. It's nice. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah. So that's what's been uh, that's what's on my mind right now. So those are both very nice things. Mm-hmm. Let's let's dive into the darkness that is Twitter mm-hmm. in this week's Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Theologica was 
Thomas Aquinas's summary of theology, the Summa Tweetologica, is our summary of things we found interesting on Twitter. And it's not as dark as I, as I make it sound. There's actually some good stuff on there, too. And this was from a question uh, a few weeks ago uh, that our account uh, posed. It was, you know, what questions do you have for the priests? I found this one interesting. This is from Woke Coast Faithful at Fuzzy Earlobes, which is gross, buddy. Change your at. That's gross. But you made a very good question. How much time do priests spend training altar servers? And how long do they, assuming they mean altar servers, generally stick around? So how long do we train altar servers? Mm -hmm. How long do we stick around? And in the past, I didn't do much altar server training. Um, I think it very much depends on the liturgical mindset of the priests. One of the things I've noticed coming here is that um, we have very well-trained altar servers. Mm. Before I got here, the other parochial vicars like really did a lot. And what's amazing is that the altar servers are very well-trained. Mm. And because of that, they're very invested in the liturgy. Um, the guys and the girls are very invested in doing their jobs well and in the liturgy. And sometimes, a lot of times when I'm a priest, you know, the altar server is it's less the altar server me helping me as a priest celebrating mass and me helping them as an altar server which is fine which is fine but like for the altar servers here it's amazing (laughs) I just like feel more comfortable when they're around because I know Mm -hmm. everything's going to be done well Mm -hmm. and the one thing I notice is because uh, the other priests have invested so much time in them like they show up to mass on time ready to go they know what's going on in the liturgy Um, they have like I can tell them this or that which may change because of the feast day and they'll just do it. And so they become much more invested in Catholic life. Mm -hmm. And so that's changed my perspective. Like, you know, whenever I become a pastor, if I go to another parish, the more time you put into your altar servers, that pays like huge, huge, Mm -hmm. huge dividends. Now, I think most altar servers, you know, you you give them in grade school, whatever, they usually stop when they go off to college. Um, But even like the altar servers in my experience who did altar serving all throughout elementary school, high school, if they come back uh, from college and are out of the mass and see there's no altar servers, they'll, they'll hop back in mm-hmm. uh, and help mm-hmm. out. Also, we have some great older uh, folks who are altar servers for mm-hmm. some of our daily masses cool. uh, who are also excellent and are happy to help uh, the priests serve. So yes. I, I have definitely changed my opinion as far as like, this is just a nice thing to do to like, this is a really important mm-hmm. thing to do. It really helps our young people and it helps me too. Yeah. So, yeah, my last parish, when I got there, weren't many. And we, I was able to kind of build it up and, and get more kids to come in. It was interesting because we don't really have we had a lot of kids, but not really a lot of teens. Um, but we had a lot of kids. So which was, I thought this is a good thing to start up with because then we could, you know, maybe that could grow into something like a youth group one day. We just didn't have enough to get it going. But I was like, we could one day, right? So I thought that was yeah. – and it worked, it worked pretty well. I think I had something like over 20 kids signed up for altar serving by the time I left, which was great. Yeah. And and we did outings with the kids. You know, we'd go bowling or hiking or whatever. Maybe go, take them to a movie once in a while. Like, not not often, but like – and also – but you'd also do formation. Like – yeah, because I want like you want them to be both. It's not just it's not just doing like learning what the mass is all about, what's happening and everything, but it's also about like building community. And so that means going bowling or whatever and, and hanging out with the families. And <clears throat> I thought it went quite well. And it got to a point where it's just because it can get busy. I got a, I got someone in the parish to kind of take it over, like in terms of like organizing it all. But that I would oh, be yeah. there to help with training and everything like that all the time, right? And it, I thought it went really well. And so now here, um because of COVID and everything, like essentially we're starting from scratch. I ha- I, right now I just have my sacristans who are, I think almost all of them are knights. 
Um, I have four sacristans, and so they help serve mass, daily mass, weekend mass, and it's fine for now. But we're, we have a huge class. We do confirmation earlier here, right? We do confirmation grade three as part of the restored right order. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, um, so we have seven kids who have said that they'd like to altar serve, which is a good start. So we're going to get that going, and I'm going to be invested in that. We're going to get a credence table in the sanctuary there eventually, finally, because there isn't one right now. Um, mm. And it's just, I find, yeah, because I find the kids, it's interesting. Like, I find, and it is, it's also interesting, like, boys and girls do it very differently. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and by this, I mean, like, it's just it's just interesting to, to, to observe, right? The girls I fi- I've found, this is my only my experience, is only, you know, I'm not trying to generalize, but this is my experience that I've noticed is common. The girls are very good at what they do. Um, they're very attentive to detail. The young boys can be a little bit more head in the clouds, a little silly sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But they're very keen to do the fancy stuff, like ring the bells or, or anything yes. like that. They want to, and, and, and even if, and it's, and that it's okay to let them do that. Because I've been in places where they're like, oh, the kids are looking a little squirmy up there. I'm like, yeah, they're kids. Like, what do you expect? Yeah. <laughs> Just be glad they're here. Come on. Like, yeah. And, and, but, but that they grow to love things about the mass, right? Yes. Uh, and it gets, becomes teaching opportunities. I remember one kid said, hey, can we have, can we have, can we have the wine as well? I said, no. And here's, oh, for purification? No, no, for, for communion for both species. Oh, but we okay. do, we were doing both species for a while here. But right. I said, I'll tell you what so what is the wine he goes it's the blood of jesus i'm like yeah so was it really appropriate to call it wine? he goes no i guess not i said so i'll tell you what when you can start calling it the blood of christ you can have you can have that as well (laughs) and they did right yeah because they learned it and they're so you do it like not gently like it's it's a teaching these are all teaching moments and it's just i don't know i always found it it is really interesting and it's like and they're kids they're not going to know all the deep theology about they're not going to know what an epiclesis is they don't care they yeah. know the Holy Spirit's coming down at this part when you put out your hands yeah. and that's when you ring the bells and it's like and it's really cool so I'm looking forward to getting that started here I had a great experience altar serving when I was at our cathedral after my conversion as an adult and, um, and actually I got a question for you what was your when you were altar serving what mm. was your favorite thing to do oh uh, ring the bells oh interesting I took great pride in how well I rung the bells <laughs> in, my, in my mind incense man Incense. Oh, we never did incense. That's the thing. Uh, yeah. Okay. Incense is definitely the coolest job. Cool. I mean, MC is the big job, right? Yeah. That's the big job. But incense is the best, especially when you just it just soaks into your pores. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll, yeah, and uh, I I would agree with your generalization about uh, boys and girls altar serving, um, especially at, when they're younger. Now, when they're older, we we leave like leadership positions for the older guys. They'll wear cassock and surplus, and they'll take more you know charge of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even to see them grow in leadership as they get older, and like to see them interact very well with the younger altar servers, yeah. it's like oh, this is so good. Yeah. This is so good for like just their human formation yeah. as well. And, and you get um, more and responsibility yes, the, as you get older and everything, right? Like, yeah, yeah. But speaking about like the um, uh, kind of attention to details for some of the girl ultra servers, the other day we had to consecrate a few low gluten hosts, and uh, so I took a a saboria and just like put four in there. And uh, one of the girl ultra servers is like, uh, "Do you want to use this one?" I'm like, uh, "Which one do you want to use?" And she's like, "This one because it's smaller, and you're only using four hosts." I'm like, "Yeah, sure, let's do that." Like, so she was like paying attention to those kind of details, yeah. which was like, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah. Actually, we'll we'll kind of keep the 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 kid 
team theme going here. So this is from right. a Joy Marie Clarkson, uh, Join Us the Brave. <clears throat> She's got a few tweets in this thread, but I thought it was actually really good. People often ask how they can help their kids teen- slash teens cultivate and keep a strong faith. And my honest answer is to read them beautiful stories, take them to breakfast every week, encourage them, ask questions, pray together, have honest conversations about the world. Don't be afraid. People seem to think that a Bible study or apologetic book or a podcast will keep their kids from deconstruction. I understand it's a scary world and parents want to pass on their faith, but unfortunately that's not how life, faith, doubt work. Your main goal shouldn't be to keep your kids from deconstructing or doubting. It should be to help them honestly and bravely encounter life. If God is real, you don't need to freak out. Your calm and willingness to engage with serious questions bespeaks a sturdy faith. And I just... There's more to say, but I'm, you know, uh, but I thought, I was just like, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, I, I almost don't want to add anything because I just think it's such a perfect point. Like, be faithful. You can't, we can't control things, right? We cannot control things. Be faithful in what's being asked of you. Love your kids. And you also have to be okay. Like, there may come a point where in their own adulthood, or even maybe later teens, through no fault of your own. They choose to not live the faith. That you can't control that, and it's mm-hmm. and it's okay, yeah. because this, they still have a life to live, and it might not be the end. Yeah, no, I agree, and it, I think that's an important distinction. Uh, trying to cultivate in them a love for the faith instead of a fear of leaving it, um, and and also I think that is the most important thing. And I, I mean, I don't know how to do this. Um, yeah. I think it's a tricky thing, uh, but. You know, doing everything you can to let them know that like questions are okay, that you can they can talk to you about anything, like that. That's having that framework and that foundation. That's what allows it to happen. Like I said, I don't have a whole lot of advice on how to do it, mm-hmm. uh, except that um, if you freak out, they freak out. Um, yeah. And, uh, and think, but yeah, no, I think that's very. Well, good. I think it's also even uh, like okay for priests to like like same thing for priests in some ways too. And mm-hmm. like, the teenage like teenagers like you know I mean sometimes teachers teenagers like just to push boundaries to so be like oh yeah man god's dead i'm like yeah okay yep he died and <laughs> like i'm not going to be offended by your facile quoting of nietzsche or something like that you know yeah but it's it's you know i've i've enc- my encounters with teens and kids when they ask honest questions and you give them the space to ask them honestly you give your best answer back without being afraid or concerned by their question mm-hmm they often take that in and vice, yeah. and it's important and here's the other thing it's important for us to listen mm-hmm. like when you're listening something happens you know and it shows them that you respect them and that what you're thinking through is worthy of respect absolutely and so thinking uh speaking of faith reason discussions along that line let's get into presbyteral exhortations and now it is time for presbyteral exhortations. Oh yes, yes. quite good, quite good. Indubitably, mm-hmm. I bet they can't wait to learn. They're gonna learn so much. It's my favorite part. It's the best part. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, quite. Uh, so, Father Harrison, yeah. I I cannot promise uh, how much I will do this voice, <laughs> but I will probably be doing it so much that producer Nick will be uh, irritated 
at me mm-hmm. because we are going back into uh, Colonel Ratzinger. Mm. And I just love his little German accent and I like to imitate it mm. because it is adorable. And as I was um, saying to you before we recorded, you also have like a natural scratchiness to your throat that just yes, adds on to uh, it. Does it was kinda... I watching YouTube videos to practice for this before the podcast? Yes, I was. Oh, you were? Uh, <laughs> yes, I was, I was watching him address some so the Congress, maybe during the Bush era. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to talk about <laughs> the Regensburg uh-huh. address. Uh-huh. And this was a, a, little, a little talk he gave to uh, his former uh, university as he came back there as a pope. And I did not know much about this when I started. Uh-huh. So I knew that it was a thing. Uh-huh. I knew some people got angry about it. Uh-huh. I also knew it was only going to be a few pages long, uh-huh. and I knew that you probably have opinions on it. So I'm like, this will be an excellent topic. Yes, as I said to you in our, in our text group, um, is this another one of those, I'm going to choose something that I know Father Harrison knows a lot about so that he can just talk about it so I don't have to do any prep? Uh, yes, it's close to that. It's, close. So it's better than what I did last time. Okay. Last time I did that, it was literally like your article. I think that I talked <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> At that's least true. this is a third is source that this I have read twice. Good. I'm I have read it ten times, like you, but I have, I have read it many, it many, 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 many times. <laughs> it's a, it's a good address. I mean, he had some yes. real, he had some real home runs addresses when he was. I think that's when he, the professorial role came out when he had to give like addresses to that. He gave a great address in the UK to Parliament. He gave. An amazing address to the representative cultures in France. Like he has these just addresses where he's just like, man, you just knock, you just you threw on your your uh, professor's Beretta and you just went for it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this one is it's commonly called the Regensburg Address. Uh, the subtitle is Faith, Reason, and the University: Memories and Reflections. And so I want to talk about two things. Actually, the content of it, which I think is very interesting, and then maybe a little bit about the controversies and just whatever your yeah. opinions are on it. Sound good? Sounds good. So he, he begins by having a remembrance of the time when he was a young professor at Regensburg. Mm-hmm. And all of the faculty, they had wonderful conversations mm-hmm. about faith and reason. Mm-hmm. They talked about the ones who did not like the two uh, uh, departments of theology, yes. and they thought that that was a very silly thing to have. Uh, they were still able to have conversations, and this was wonderful. But this did not last forever because of modernity. Uh, so he begins by kind of just reflecting on that good experience yeah. that he had in the very beginning. Yeah. And then he jumps into a thing he was reflecting on. And this, I'm going to skip over the controversial part a little bit because yeah. I want to talk about that later. Um, but he begins with this uh, story of this uh, Byzantine emperor and a Persian inter- interlocutor. Can you say the Persian emperor's a, name? Or sorry, the, the Byzantine uh, emperor's name? The Byzantine's emperor name is uh, <clears throat> Emperor Manuel the Manuel the Second. No, Manuel Paleologus. <laughs> Manuel the Second Paleologus. My Greek Paleologus. 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 Which is oh, that's funny. Logos is in there, uh, sort of. Uh, anywho, I just wanted so, to just yeah. No, no, fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, uh, my my French and Greek uh, yep. pronunciations are equally amazing mm-hmm. so they're having this dialogue and of course if you any cursory knowledge of history is the byzantines and the uh persians slash uh, muslims didn't get along a lot because right. they fought all the time right. but they're having this conversation about faith and in it the emperor makes this assertion that violence 
can never be a part of conversion because it goes against reason. And to go against reason is to go against God. The God must always be reasonable. And this is kind of obvious to him because that's good old-fashioned uh, Hellenistic Greek uh, understanding of who God is, mm-hmm. where there are, and I don't want to speak for, I mean, I only took one semester of um, Arabic philosophy, so I'm not pretending I am a expert in all things Muslim or anything like that, but there definitely are strains, uh, and there are actually some strains in Christianity as well, which we'll get to, mm-hmm. of this kind of, uh, how would you pronounce it, Harrison? Voluntarism? Is yeah, voluntarism, right? yep. That's fine. Yeah. And it's this idea that God is so powerful that in a sense, he's not bound by reason. Right. So if, you know, morality in the world, God could change that. Mm-hmm. If God wanted to, he could say murder is good. If God wanted to, he could make us worship idols and that would be good if he wanted it to be that way. If he wanted to, he could make you into a duck. Yes. Just, he would just like make you into a duck for funsies. And the the reasoning behind this, even if those examples sound silly, is that there's a desire to protect God's omnipotence, yes. God's power, mm-hmm. that God is so beyond us that we can't even reach him through our intellect. And this is That's, very against the Christian idea yeah. where we're made in the image and likeness of God. Mm-hmm. And we are reflections, however dim, uh, of the creator. Sound good? Okay. So that's the question. How much does reason actually have to play in our understanding of faith and why is that important? And he frames around this idea of Hellenization. I found this part interesting because this really gets into the Protestant Reformation as well. Uh, A typical Protestant critique of Catholicism is that it became too Greek. Uh, Some of the caricatures of this are that St. Paul made it too Greek. That what we really need is a pure gospel based on scripture and that's what the gospel is. It was kind of uh, poisoned by Greek thoughts. So this whole, all that Aristotle stuff, all the Thomas stuff, all of the uh, Augustinian stuff, all ruins Christianity. Oh, I can't hear you right now, Harrison. Was I, I mean, there we go. Sorry, I was muted. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, not just that. Um, it's also John's gospel. Right, like this is no, like his point actually even goes much deeper that anything Hellenized in Scripture is unauthentic gospel, because Hellenized uh, the Hellenistic world, the Greek world, is not where the gospel grows in in from. It, it, it grows from Judaism, so we have to remove the accretions of Greek thought from the Scriptures themselves. Right. Um, this, to is, see this is the, the real yeah, Lutheran yeah, position. This yeah. to see the real gospel that's there. Right. Which brings, uh, Bennett has two like very interesting counter arguments that I found uh, very fun. First one's kind of obvious uh, that John writes about the Logos. Mm-hmm. Like John, the gospel, John is written in Greek and the beginning was the word. Mm-hmm. And that word is Logos, which means both word as we understand it, but also reason. reason logic, also like it's a the bunch of words. Lo- yeah, reason, logic. Um, the reason why... The world is reasonable, knowable, understandable, that, you know, why is there math? Uh, why can we know things mm-hmm. in a positive, like, real way? It's because of the logos. It's a very important idea in Greek thought, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And so, but also this, this it brings an interesting question of what revelation is. Right. And the historical nature of revelation. Oh, 
I'm be getting into my next episode again, but that's okay. It's okay. Before you go for well, it, I mean, it's well, okay. It's okay. It's okay. No, it's okay. This is this is gonna be good because you're you're. I'm just forewarning the audience. He's getting yeah. into my wheelhouse about what I've been reading a lot of lately. So like, ooh, salvation history. Yes, let's talk about this. Let's talk about revelation. Yeah. But before you do, before you do, yes. Um, just one more thing around the the the, the idea of dehellenization. What it's really trying to do. Like you see, you have to have, you have to remember Luther only sees pure faith reason he has very um strong words that are not appropriate for child's ears to talk about let's call them polemical he's very polemical <laughs> he's luther it's what he did so anything that smacks of reasonableness in scripture is a greek accretion and therefore we have to remove this so we can get pure faith um so what you have is, is competition between faith and reason, even within the context of how we understand the scriptures. Um, and this gets, so it, because it, it, there's another subtle point behind all this that, that Ratzinger makes actually quite often against, he really, I'm learning more and more, he loves to go against Luther. He sees Luther as pretty much the source of all of our ills in the last 500 years. Because there are, there are good Germans and there are not so good Germans, and he wants to make this distinction. It's probably very close to his uh, heart. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's why he wants to, like, no, this is not good. Yes. This is not Christianity. My own people also say it. So if what he's trying to get at is, is he's making the point that Luther's doctrines are unbiblical. Take that, sola scriptura. And he's got a very strong point here. He's just—he's like—he's really bringing it out. Like, this is what scripture says. It's—it's—it's yeah. it's, it's at the heart of revelation, and therefore we need to take what, as it's given to us seriously, and that needs to inform how we think about things, not impose, which is the ideological worldview of the last five hundred years is ideology. We impose our thinking upon a thing and reduce it to what we think it should be, instead of the humility to receive the gift as it's given. Absolutely. So I won't try to get too much into this, but this just brings up my point of the mm -hmm. Septuagint. The idea that Christ uh, is revealed in the fullness of time, that something about the time that Christ was born is important for revelation. One of the common ways maybe we hear about this is the fact that wasn't it very uh, fortuitous that Rome built all of these roads, like they were all ready to go so that a bunch of Christians could walk on them and spread the gospel? You know, mm -hmm. it, something about that worked. Um, but even more deeply uh, is the Septuagint, which was the Old Testament and the prophets and everything translated into the Greek. And let me find it here. Ah, so I will read this uh, uh, as Ratzinger. Today we know that the Greek translation of the Old Testament produced at Alexandria, the Septuagint, is more than a simple and in a sense really less than satisfactory translation of Hebrew texts. It is an independent textual witness and a distinct and important step in the history of Revelation one which brought about this encounter in a way that was decisive for the birth and spread of Christianity. What he's saying there, uh, so eloquently, is that the translation of the text into Greek wasn't just a translation, wasn't just happenstance, but actually is a part of Revelation that plays into how Christ revealed himself. Yeah. And this makes perfect sense if you think about like, 
the Septuagint is what all the Christian um, writers of the old uh, of the New Testament referred to, went back to that this is a part of Revelation, and I find that a fascinating argument. And it's what so it's what the church has always depended upon in terms of her translation of the Bible, um, and. Uh, and it's also what was pretty much the common text. Like it's the text the gospel writers would have used. Yes. And this is, and that's the other thing. It's like, well, this is what the gospel. This is what all the writers of the New Testament used. So that's what we should be referring to, right? This is yeah. what was commonly used. I mean, Greek was Greek was kind of like English back in the day in some ways. Like it was, it, it was further than just Greece. Like, it, and and. Yeah. But at the same time, what he's also saying with all of that is that. Revelation and salvation are historical processes. Now, some people's alarm bells are going to be off when I'm saying this. Yeah, but sure. He's not being Hegelian here. He's not saying this is just like God and, you know, unfolding himself within the process of the world to become himself. That's not what we're talking about here. But rather, it's the coming. So, our doctrine of the church, of, of who Christ is and everything, doctrine is based in historical realities not ideas and so part of that historical reality is the Septuagint. so the historical the processes of man of man existing in time and in, in place are the things that god uses to reveal himself so this is all about mediation right too yeah um but that history so you can't make a you can't make a dichotomy between history and being you can't make a but you also can't make a confusion of the two you know that's what Hegel does. It's a confusion. It becomes process, and you make the separation, and then all you have is history with no being, and it's really bad. But he's saying like they kind of exist together in a Christological fashion. Um, yeah, yeah. And to counter that, like other faith systems or philosophical philosophical systems don't have that. Mm -hmm. You know, Buddhism. You don't even need the Buddha, the historical person, for the faith right. or you know thought system of Buddhism. The important thing is what is taught, those ideas. Yep. That's the philosophy. And also, it's it's very different because um, like Christianity is very linear. Um, we hear the phrase, the story of salvation. Story implies time, history, progression. Like, that's just a huge part of our faith. And I wish you guys could see the wiggling of Father Harrison's eyebrows as he gets very excited. <laughs> so, we'll leave that for now. Right. So, that's a thing. Yeah. And we'll get into the dehellenization. Okay. Unless you want to say something. I'm not going to get into eyebrows. the history stuff. I'm just going to, I'm going to hold, I'm going to hold it in. Um, Good. But the other important thing with this, it's like, yeah, what is unique to Christianity is that it's some, something in particular is actually the universal. It's the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. He's the universe. He's the thing that everything centers around. It's n so, and I, and it's nothing against Protestant brothers and sisters. And I know it's different in different Protestant churches, but a lot of sure. times it's actually about the notion of faith alone is, is the thing that saves you and stuff like this. That's actually a doctrine, not a person, right? It's, 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 and it's why for us doc and it's, and I think this is actually getting to stuff around catechesis and stuff where we, we'd like to do doctrine first. Yeah. When it actually, it's about being initiated into the story. You're now, by entering the church, entering into Christ's story. The narrative, because that's what history is all about. So you see, that's the other thing. So history for us is a narrative. It's not, it's, it's, it's like more, it is more um, Aristotle's notion of poetry and myth than it is 
his definitely not his notion of history but and, and our and it's not so it's not just about this past it's actually now the church is the place where the story continues to happen around this person who's involved in our lives and this is all this is, this is all behind everything he's saying sorry I'm, yeah I'm, I'm gonna shut up now Okay, so uh, beginning with Luther, the Protestant Reformation, all this de-Hellenization stuff begins, and it takes it goes off in some wonky directions. It starts from a wonky place, goes in some wonky directions. One of the directions it goes into is that you've got this separation of the God of faith and the God of the philosophers. Mm-hmm. So you have this idea of like this pure faith God and this pure Hellenistic religion God, and this is a problem. Because the good people of Europe who have been formed in this Christian ethos, this combination of Near East, Greek, and Roman thought, and blah, blah, blah history, you know, they still like Jesus. Like, even the, you know, the Protestants like Jesus, and we would like Jesus to be taken more seriously. Mm-hmm. So how do we take Jesus more seriously when you've got, like, this super faith-type Jesus and then this super Hellenistic-type vague God? Well, let's just get to the truth of this historical Jesus guy. You know what he was? He was a good Jewish dude who taught good Jewish and Christian morals. And so then we turn Jesus into this great moralizer. And so, and you see this uh, very famously uh, in the Enlightenment period with uh, Thomas uh, Jefferson cutting out all of the miraculous stuff in the Bible. And like, you just have his phrases and sayings and stuff. So you have that. And the idea was, if we can make this more of a moral thing, then we can add Jesus back into the university. Mm then he can be taken seriously. So it's this desire to like retrieve Jesus from this problem that they have created. And in doing so, they make even a, a deeper, more difficult like problem. Because mm-hmm. uh, there's all kinds of problems with this, uh, that Jesus's message and his moralizing, if you will, is very bound up in who he is. Yep. And who he is, is, is God and man. Yeah. And it's something he tries to make really clear in Jesus of Nazareth, right? Like it's, it's this yeah. constant Jesus at the center. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's all around him and he's trying to get us to this. And the other thing is, yeah, there's, and when the, it's a little taste to next week's episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when history is, you see our notions of history are actually very, are rooted in Christianity. We, it's because of Christianity, like the notion of progress in time is possible, okay? Um, that the notion of an end in the beginning in time, all Christianity, like, and so what happens in, in, in modernity as it, as it unbinds, as the Christ of faith and the Christ of history gets separated, so too does being in history, and so too does the whole, and so now the notion of history gets twisted. And so then what becomes reasonable is all about these abstract universals that take no account for the particular. They take no account for history, which is all very enlightenment. And you see this, and, this, and, this is the thing, and this is why I think it's important too, is you actually see this in the church as well, in terms of certain ways the theology gets done in the 19th and 20th century. It's all about abstract systems of thought with no real sense of history, change, time, and not taking account of it. It's very essentialist. And he's going after all of this and all of this. Like he's, he's like, he is, he's swinging for the fences in this lecture. He's, he's, yeah. he's not, a lot of it's not spoken, but it's implied by, we can give you his other stuff, it's implied there. And so what he's trying to do, he's saying, no, to be reasonable, there's a few things he's saying with all this, but one of the three reasonable is to bring history 
as a legitimate place of encounter with truth. Yeah. And there's another problem that arises, and this is the problem of uh, this scientism, or that the only knowledge that we can be sure of is that which is falsifiable. And he, he points out the contradiction in this. <clears throat> and uh, he points out that there is still this weird, there is a question that is posed by this idea that is not answered. Uh, he says, on, on one hand, it uh, presupposes the mathematical structures of matter, its intrinsic rationality, which makes it possible to understand how matter works and how to use it efficiently. The basic premise is, so to speak, the platonic element in the modern understanding of nature. So the idea that there, you can do science, that you can falsify things, that you can use a scientific method, it presupposes a kind of rationality built into nature. Mm-hmm. But that rationality that's built into nature cannot be proven scientifically. Mm-hmm. So that's the contradiction. So like the whole thing that you, like you can discover things, that you can learn things, presupposes this structure which is not merely physical, which is kind of spiritual. That's why he calls it platonic. So there's this platonic element in scientism that scientism cannot answer. And so essentially, by limiting reason, you're limiting the deeper questions of life that are still implied by saying that science is the only form of reason. Right. And then this leads him because like I don't I'm hoping I'm not skipping ahead here. But it's 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 him coming around to actually I would argue maybe one of the more important central arguments that he's actually trying to make. That I mean there's many. Uh, he's I'm really he is a multi layered guy. He says one sentence. He's doing a lot. In he this, says one yeah. sentence. But he's saying ten things in that sentence. It's very sacramental. <laughs> it's really cool. Um, He's trying to say theology, if the university is going to be the university, it must accept theology as a place of reason and searching for truth. Otherwise, the university is no longer universal and therefore no longer a university, but a trade school. Yeah. It no longer deals with the human person. Yes, because this, it, uh, it limits the human person. And, that, and that's the thing for him to be human is to seek after truth. Mm-hmm. Because it's in truth lived in history, but also thought as being. Um, when freedom and truth go hand in hand, you can't have one without the other. And so to be human, yeah. to express our freedom is to know truth. It will, and, and actually, he would actually say, uh, what we find as you seek for truth is not that we grasp the truth, but that the truth grasps us. So yeah. cool. Oh, so good. Um, yeah. But this is his thing. It's like to be human is to do this. And if the university is to be truly human, it needs to allow theology to be a place of honest inquiry around truth. Uh, and if you're not doing this, you're not actually being reasonable mm-hmm. because you're denying the very, the, the possibility. And if you're going to be really scientific you ha- and you can't falsify this, which you can't, it's actually an impossibility to falsify. Uh, if yeah. you're going to be really scientific, you have, to, and it's a possibility, then you have to allow it for its research and its search for truth until you can falsify it. So if you're really reasonable, you're going to put theology faculties in every university. Yeah. Uh, so, and we say very often, because it's true, that theology is the queen of the sciences. Yeah. 
definitely the and queen. the Catholic understanding of science is broader and more open than the modern idea of this you know uh only what is falsifiable idea of science so if it's just this modern idea of science uh to quote ratzinger if science as a whole is this and this alone then it is man himself who ends up being reduced for specifically human questions about our origin and destiny the questions raised by religion and ethics have no place within the purview of collective reason as defined by science so understood and thus must be regulated to the realm of the subjective the subject then decides on the basis of his experience what he considers tenable in matters of religion and the subjective conscience becomes the sole arbiter of what is ethical in this way ethics and religion lose their power to create a community and to become and be, and becomes a completely personal matter so this is another problem with this if if we cannot enter into this broader idea of what science is then ultimately the uh, uh, ethics and morality become completely subjective mm -hmm. we have to decide what it is and that becomes very individual and you cannot build a culture you cannot build a community with everyone subjectively deciding what is good and what is wrong what is evil what is the holy you can't democratize that, truth you can't democratize truth it, it fractures and this is what we see very much so mm -hmm. in our culture this is why uh the culture wars rage uh in the u.s and elsewhere it's because there cannot be ultimately um there cannot be any kind of community coherence right. because we refuse to look to reason as the arbiter yeah. of morality of ethics of faith yeah he actually, and he continues on after that quote, he says, this is a dangerous state of affairs for humanity. As we see from the disturbing pathologies of religion and reason, which necessarily erupt when reason is so reduced that questions of religion and ethics no longer concern it. Attempts to construct an ethic from the rules of evolution or from psychology and sociology end up simply being inadequate. Because again, so if to be human then is not to be, um, it's not to kind of be self-referential, but it's rather to be, to expropriate, to look outwards, to give yourself away in order to find yourself, which is the exercise of freedom. That is how freedom lives. That's how freedom is meant to be. And so when, when it, when you, when you essentially what he's, he's arguing for the social nature of man here, that to be human is to be free for others which is a very Christian notion, obviously. He's obviously, listen, I mean, he doesn't really bring Christ into this. Well, he does, but I mean, not in the way that one would normally, but man, like Christology is at the heart of all of this, always with him. And when you, when you live only for self, when you only go only around subject, there is no reason. It's will. It's, it's, it's an it's a anthropological voluntarism where I am the source of my own power. Um, it's Nietzsche is what it is. And when that happens, and, it, and I think it's really important that he says here, this is a religious problem and a secular problem. When religion refuses to listen to reason adequately and to give the human a reasonable place in the dialogue of religion, man becomes annihilated to a point where he loses his subjectivity and becomes a tool and a pawn in the hands of a divine power being, right? And I, I think, 
I think he's trying to say this discreetly, but it is, a, and it's, it is not Islam qua Islam, but there, it is has a tendency in Islam in some in some yeah. aspects of it, at least some of its the, uh, some groups within it with theology, right? Yeah, it, and also within a, some areas of yeah, Christianity. And, well, too. exactly, right? Yes, because yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, integralism. Um, yeah, integralism is this. It's a it's a sense that the subject doesn't matter. Only the truth matters to a point that I am able to strong arm you into faith, because the truth is the truth, and it will it'll it, it we can we can use it as a tool however we want. It is not based in a Christian anthropology. On the flip side, though, and I think in some ways this is the greater danger right now. It's a secular problem of 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 reason. Um, reduced, narrowed, right? Um, a, 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 a natural reason that refuses to go beyond itself towards the transcendent. That's a narrow view of reason. That's a narrowing of the mind. Mm-hmm. And when this happens, you see what you're seeing so much of today. You're seeing the discord and the division because we are, we've stopped actually seeking for truth. And I know it sounds almost cliche to say that, but he's actually right because what he's talking about here is a cultural renewal of the heart which is something we all need to participate in like i think in some ways he's arguing for a more subsidiary form of renewal which is very ground level not in the big screen culture wars yeah but in the local living of culture as the seedbed where we seek truth together and in so doing, bring others in the seeking of truth and build a civilization of love. But that requires conversion. And, and this is the big thing, humility. I, yeah. and this, cause this is at the heart of it. I am not my own authority. Even the most brilliant philosopher of the world cannot understand all things at all times. It's impossible. And so you have to have a humility towards the truth. That's the starting point he's asking us to be in. So uh, we're coming to the end, so uh, I'll just wrap up the essay, then we'll talk a little bit about the controversy. Um, but uh, so he has three stages of his dehellenization. The first one was Protestant Reformation. The second one was this uh, turning Jesus into basically this moralizer, separating uh, faith reason even further. And finally, what's going on even today, you hear critiques of that um, the Hellenistic Christianity is a purely Western idea that we're um, colonizing other cultures with. And his response is that is what we need, like the, like there are some aspects that we, that of, of the culture that Christianity was born in that doesn't necessarily need to be transferred to other cultures. And this is a very Catholic idea that we can take what's good from each culture and bring it in. But the necessary thing is this relationship between faith and reason. And that, relationship of faith and reason which came through revelation which came through history that's a universal it came through this particular of this interaction of of greek and uh, judeo um, cultures Uh, but it is a universal that is not oppressive to any true culture Mm -hmm. basically yeah is that good uh I'll, i'll just quote if you're looking for, yeah. he, he expands on some of these ideas in his book, Truth and Tolerance. So if you're looking for a book that kind of goes into this stuff, that's the book to look at. Yeah. And then finally, he kind of swings back to his original point. The original point was this idea of this dialogue between these two cultures, these two faiths, Islam and Christianity. And he says that without using 
this reason and, and opening it up to truth into a greater reality, you are throwing away so much human culture. Like you are like, um, you're saying that, you know, a good Buddhist can't really be a good scientist or a uh, good Catholic or Protestant or uh, Muslim. Like these, all cultures have parts to play in the human search for truth. Mm -hmm. And if you throw out reason and if you limit reason, that cannot happen. So he's actually encouraging further harmony and dialogue among human beings, which should be happening at the university. Mm -hmm. And this is why you need to have theology departments at the university. Yep. I mean, it's good news for me because uh, I'm, I'm a theologian. It would make more exactly. jobs for me. Not that I need a job, I guess, but you know. Yeah. So to, uh, to, to finish up, uh, one last quote from uh, Ratzinger, and he is quoting Manuel II. Uh, not to act reasonably, not to act with logos, is contrary to the nature of God. According to his Christian understanding of God, in response to his Persian interlocutor, it is this great logos, to this breadth of reason, that we invite our partners in the dialogue of cultures to rediscover it constantly is the great task of the university. Any final comments yeah. on the content of what's going on before we talk about well, I, I, why I, everyone I was angry at like this? 20 things about the whole talk, but I'm, I was going to say one thing about the last <laughs> thing there. I think actually that yeah. little word at the end, to rediscover it constantly is the great task of the university. This is actually a very important point because it's actually coming out of his notion of tradition. Tradition is not a static, ossified, looking to the past what has been given and just accepting it notionally. Tradition is actually historical. This is very John Henry Newman, by the way. He actually gets a lot of this from Newman, but he also from Bonaventure. Um, to rediscover constantly, in other words, is to say, if you're going to take reason seriously, you got to take human existence seriously, which means it's a, it is a constant opening ourselves up to truth always, which is not, it's not a one and done thing. It's impossible because hum if truth is what it really is, if reason is really what it is, if logos is what it really is, then there's no exhausting it. And therefore it demands of us a constant opening up to it without, without exhausting it ever as human beings. And so to be reasonable is to be traditional in the proper Catholic understanding of the word tradition. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you're not being reasonable. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I skipped over this a little bit. I alluded to it, but this is why people got angry. The opening example he gives, this dialogue between the emperor and this uh, Persian, um, he's citing one part where they're talking about... Uh, dialoguing about holy war and while the Quran says at one point uh, there is no compulsion in religion there's also rules for holy war and so they're talking about this and so the emperor uh, says okay so this is um, Benedict quoting the emperor I'll just read this without his uh, accent for this time he addresses his interlocutor with startling brusqueness on the central question about the relationship between religion and violence in general saying Show me what Muhammad brought that was new, and there you will find only evil. Uh, you, there, there you will find things only evil and inhuman, such as his command to spread by the sword the faith he preached. 
The emperor, having expressed himself so forcefully, goes on to explain in detail the reason why spreading the faith through violence is something unreasonable. Violence is incompatible with the nature of God and the nature of a soul. God, he says, is not pleased by blood, and not acting reasonably is contrary to God's nature. Faith is born of the soul, not the body. Whoever would lead someone to faith needs the ability to speak well and to reason properly without violence and threats. To convince a reasonable soul, one does not need a strong arm or weapons of any kind or any other means of threatening a person with death. So he quotes the emperor, and the emperor said that the only thing that Muhammad brought that was new was evil, violent, and inhuman. Okay, so he's just he's quoting someone else, mm-hmm. uh, and this. so who said this thing as a way to talk about, okay, this example, is violence reasonable? Okay, then is the question of God being reasonable is, like, that's where he goes with the essay. People got very mad at this because they saw it as Pope Benedict endorsing this idea that everything that Muhammad brought about was evil and stuff. And there were riots and stuff. I Kind of ironically, there were some Christians who were uh, martyred because of this. Um, so this was the big thing. Now... I find this interesting because I think Benedict is leveling a critique against some strains of mm-hmm. Islam, or else he wouldn't use this example. But it's not a critique unto condemnation, right. but a critique unto searching for the truth of who God is, which any reasonable yeah. human being should want to do. Yeah. So if you want to know why people are cranky about this address, it was basically those yeah. lines. Um, and it's, I think there's, I mean, I think there's something there to talk about for yeah. sure, but there's also a lot to talk about in this document yeah. and we I only mean, kind of scratch the skirt. I did it. not get a chance to pre-read before this, but um, mm-hmm. I was kind of following along and it was really, yeah, one of the things I really, so was, I mean, one of the things I really love about Ratzinger is every time I go back to him, I always discover something new that I didn't see before or because I've read some other stuff, I'm able to see it with new eyes to see the stuff he's engaging with. It's just so, it's so deep. And it's every, like today, it's like even just the little bits we read, I'm like, man, like I never noticed some of this stuff before. So it's always, so it's, it's always like you're reading it for the first time. And that's, that's yeah. enjoyable. That's enjoyable. Um, that's a good read. Yeah. I think this is also a, an apologetic for Christianity in the sense that for a religion to be true, it has to answer the deepest questions of the human mm-hmm. heart. It has to take those things seriously. Right. Because if a religion didn't have to do that, that would mean a creator placed in our hearts things that were bound for frustration. Yeah, And that's contrary to reason, and it's also contrary to the idea of a loving God. And that's something that true Christianity answers completely. Mm-hmm taking into account science, taking into account history, taking into account, and most especially revelation and divine revelation and how all these things are in harmony because all of existence, hmm. all of creation is made by this reasonable God. It's not like God is bound by reason, but reason flows from his very being. Right. Yeah. So it's not like God has to be reasonable. It's that reason, truth, goodness, beauty, all yeah, these things not, are it's, one. It's not a property of God. It's yeah. who God is. Yeah. And that's, I think, a very important distinction and one that's like, because the idea that you need to free God from the bounds of reason is to not understand who God right. is. And at the same time, you're trying to, yeah. prote- and at yeah. the same time, putting God within the bounds of your own notion of reason 
is not who God is mm-hmm. either. It's analogy. It's right. analogy, yes. right? Good. You see, it is analogy. So it's about this. Oh, there was a line. Yeah, there's a, yeah. Go ahead. Go um, so for those who don't know what analogy is, it's actually the way we're supposed to think as Catholics. Um, Lateran 4 says, for every similarity there's between God and creation, there's an ever greater dissimilarity, right? So yes, we can say, it allows us to be able to speak about God. Um, we could say God is reasonable and we have our own ideas of reason and he has all those that are true about it. But he's also like infinitely greater than that. And we're, we're capturing like a tenth of a grain of sand, an, a, a thousandth of a grain, I don't know, just some infinitesimally yeah. small aspect of what reason actually is in God. It allows us mm-hmm. to speak of him, but it's a re- also allowing for his transcendence. So it allows for his imminence and transcendence to exist at the same time. And it's a very important principle to actually interiorize as a Catholic because we do not think yeah. this way at all and we need to because it's actually the Catholic way of thinking. Yeah, it's paradoxical. And yeah, so he actually quotes the Lateran Council here. Um, unlikeness remains infinitely greater than likeness. Infinitely yep. greater. Yet, not to the point of abolishing analogy and its language. God is infinitely greater, but we can still talk about him. So it's that weird and, it's paradox. And where does this come from? The person of Jesus. Yeah. Of, of humanity and divinity. His divinity never overwhelms or destroys his humanity. His humanity never limits or um, impedes his divinity. His divinity is infinitely greater than his humanity, but it never destroys it. It never makes it unencounterable. It actually becomes the principal means through and is actually the way towards transformation. It also shows us that we're most human when we're with God. But that's another thing. There you go. Okay. Uh, uh, thank you for listening to part one of our Ratzinger doubleheader. Join us next week when we will talk more about Ratzinger. I wonder what Hans Kung sounds like. I could do like a Hans Kung uh, uh, response or something. That would be, we could have, you should learn uh, how to do uh, Casper, Cardinal Casper, and then we can have a dialogue. And it would be wonderful. Uh, but until then, please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about uh, the broadcast. Tell us your enemies too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. You can find me speaking like Cardinal Ratzinger in my room by myself like a uh, crazy person. You can find me at FR Harrison on Twitter. Contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter. Uh, find us on Facebook, on uh, the YouTube, or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. Please also, if your heart is so inclined, to uh, donate to our Patreon account uh, so that we can continue to fund our excellent producers, producer Nick and Riley, and also that they can have diapers for their baby. And any funds that go beyond those expenses and that of our equipment. Uh, we'll go to the daughters of St. Paul who are so lovely and uh, we bless them and pray for them always. Uh, peace. God bless. <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> I'm going to make a D&D character for that voice. <laughs>